And turn now, please, to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26, we'll be looking at most of the chapter today, verses 1 through 33. Before we get there, consistent with, with, with the songs that we have sung already today and the emphasis of the last few minutes, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, the Bible is a living and powerful book. It is not like any other book that has ever been written. It is not a mere record of historical events or men's thoughts. It is not a user guide to a man-made religion. The Bible is the very word of the living God, and it is given to us as a profound gift of His grace. We need to value it as such. The Scripture is a revelation of things as they truly are, of things as they one day truly will be. The Bible gives us God's mind on the world. The Bible gives us God's mind on each one of us. And so what we find in Scripture is meant ultimately to reveal to us who God is, what He is like, what He is doing, why He is doing it. And then from that foundation, what we find in Scripture is meant to reveal to us who we are, who we are in relationship to Him, what is wrong with the world that we live in today, and what is to be done about what is wrong in the world, and what God's ultimate intentions are for it all. And so in a nutshell, what we find in all of Scripture is meant to bring us to God and to teach us how to live in fellowship with Him according to His purpose, for His glory and our good. That has been our approach in our study of the book of Genesis. We always have to be careful with Old Testament books and Old Testament narratives, not to just assume that we are the direct recipients of it, though we are the recipients of it. We need to understand what, what are these passages doing, not just to teach us how to do good things, but to teach us about the God who is behind it all. And as we studied the life of Abraham, in chapters 12 through 25, we learned about who God is. We saw what He is like. We observed how He works in the lives of His people. And then from that, we drew out certain points of application that show us what it looks like to live a life of faith, even in the midst of a sin-cursed world. And hovering over all of this is not a, a moralistic emphasis, but a salvation emphasis, showing us how God is moving all history to the fulfillment of His purpose, namely the saving of His people from their sins. And so here, even in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, we encounter this story of how God is moving all things forward to the Messiah. And that's what's wrapped up in the promises that He made to Abraham. And so God's salvation plan is progressing on through the Old Testament, leading the way for the coming of Christ in the New Testament and the culminating work of redemption. And all of this we learn about to some degree from the life of Abraham. But now we're past the life of Abraham. The big name is gone. He is passed off the scene. And now we begin to look at the life of Isaac. And that'll be very brief. And then we'll move on to Jacob. And while we look at their lives, we continue to learn the same lessons. We continue to learn who God is. We continue to learn how He works in the lives of His people and what His big purpose and goal is for everything that He does. And we continue to learn what a life of faith looks like for God's people. We continue to learn the same lessons 
because it is the same God who is at work in this story, just as he was when Abraham was alive. And spoiler alert, we're going to continue to learn it all the way through Scripture. And yet we don't get bored. At least I don't. We don't get bored at hearing the same themes over and over and over again. Why? Because in all of this, in the stories, in the characters, in the struggles of these characters and their triumphs and their failures and everything else we see, Scripture is coming alive to us. I love that God gave us the story of Scripture as a story and not just an owner's manual. I don't read owner's manuals. Ask me what page any detail about my car is on in the owner's manual of the car. I can't tell you. When I have trouble, I still don't look at the owner's manual. I pull up YouTube. We don't read owner's manuals. God knows that. That's why he gave us his word in the form of a story. It teaches us so much more about who he is. And it teaches us in a way that is true to life. As we see these stories, we, we see the human condition exposed. The human condition that it wasn't just Abraham living with or, or Isaac. It's us today. We see, we see our own tendencies in their lives, our own struggles. And in it all, Scripture points our attention to a God whose greatness is inexhaustible, who comforts our hearts with careful instruction and teaches us what it means to walk with Him by faith. We need these passages because they speak to us today. They reveal our greatest needs, and they teach us how to live. What a gift these passages are from God by His grace. So the chapter before us today is Genesis chapter 26. It is an account of several moments in Isaac's life that show us how God is at work to bless his people, even in the midst of the temptations and trials that they face. And I hope that we'll see that as we work through this passage this morning. Let's look at the text. If you'll follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to, your, to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, 
Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in, in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to, went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath and his advisor and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to them, said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Some of you know that on the shelves in my study, I have several pictures of Christian leaders throughout history. Pictures of men who, whose influence has had a particular impact on me, whose ministries have a particular significance for me. These are men who I would count as spiritual heroes for mine, uh, for me, and and uh, all but two of them are dead. But that's not a bad thing. Having dead heroes is a good thing. Some of these men whose pictures are on my shelves, you would know, many of you, because they are prominent figures throughout Christian history. But some of these men, you won't know, because their names are not written in the history books, at least not in very many of them. These are relatively unknown men who served in a relatively unknown place, and they serve as a reminder to me and, and I think to many others, that God does not just use for His purposes the ones that the world calls great. In fact, I'm convinced that God doesn't really think in terms of human greatness at all. Scripture makes clear that God uses what is lowly and weak and even foolish in the eyes of the world to accomplish His great purposes. That doesn't mean that there aren't Christian leaders who the world might call great, but that their greatness is not really a, a, a contingency. It's not really the peace that God is looking for in the accomplishment of His purposes. God calls us not to be great, but to be faithful. And I mention this because we have moved now from the life of the great patriarch, Abraham, now to a quick look at his son, Isaac. And we will quickly transition from Isaac to Jacob. There are some 12 chapters of Holy Scripture given to the life of Abraham. 
And depending on how you look at it, there's anywhere from 10 to 12 chapters of Holy Scripture devoted to the life of Jacob, where he is considered the main character. And in comparison to that, Genesis 26 is the only chapter of Holy Scripture where we can say Isaac is the main character. We might be able to claim chapter 27, but even there, he's already being overshadowed by Jacob. So this is it, chapter 26. And in this light, Isaac is a fairly minor character in the story of God carrying on his sovereign purposes, and yet he is an essential character to the story. And that's my point, that the blessing and the promise of God carries on regardless of the significance of the human figure involved. That the promise and the blessing of God is meant not just for the ones that humanity deems great, but for all of his people. And what we learn about God and about God's people, demonstrated throughout these chapters, has important ramifications and important implications, not just for the great, but for the rest of us too as we also strive to live by faith in the same God who has the same purpose and the same plans, even for us. Now, there is a lot in this chapter that ought to sound familiar to us. It should sound very close to reading an account of Abraham's life. Did you notice it? I think that was on purpose. In fact, it's too obvious not to have been on purpose. There's so many things in the way that God speaks to Isaac and the things that happened and the, the movement and all that's going on in this chapter that sound just like Abraham's life. And I think that's the reason it's given to us in this way, that this text is meant to highlight Isaac as the next one in line for God to carry on his purposes that he began in Abraham. The death of Abraham did not in one way stop. God's plan. And yet, even as much of it is familiar, there are still several important lessons that stand out. Lessons that in some way or another we have learned before, but lessons that we must still come back to and strive to remember often. So I want us simply to look at the events of this chapter. And I want us to make several observations about the reality of human life in this world and what God has to do with it all. I want us to begin by looking at a couple uncomfortable realities. And then I want us to turn our attention to a couple significant encouragements. We're going to move around in this chapter quite a bit. I think you'll see why as we put these important truths together about God that will turn our eyes to Him. So first of all, the first thing I want us to notice about life in this world, about human life in this world, I want us to see that just like Isaac and just like Abraham and Jacob and everyone else, that God's people suffer trials. This is a fundamental point about human life that we need to grasp and acknowledge, that God's people suffer trials. We see this in several, several ways throughout the chapter. My goal is simply to highlight them. For one thing, we see a particular trial in Isaac's life in his constant movement and resettling throughout this chapter. Did you notice that? He's constantly moving. Right? The famine hits. He, he's on his way down to Egypt. We see that in verse 1. Uh, we see in verses 17 and 18 where Isaac departed from there and, 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 and he went and encamped in the valley of Gerar. So Verse 21 and 22, he moved again and he keeps moving until he finds a place where he can settle without fighting with the Philistines. And then again in verse 23, he moves again to Beersheba. It's just one, one more uh, reminder to us that Isaac is not fully at home in the land. We've learned the significance throughout Abraham's life of that, even for us today that God's people need to realize that we are strangers and exiles in the earth, that we are seeking a homeland, that we are desiring a better country that is a heavenly one, that God's people 
are pilgrims in this world. And there is a blessing of a heavenly country that is to come. But while that is a heavenly blessing, it is still a present trial, isn't it? That this earth is not our ultimate home. This world as we know it is not the way it will always be. And so we are and we must live as pilgrims in this land. But the other trial that we see is famine, or we could call it more generally natural suffering. In verse 1, we read of a famine that comes into the land. This has to do with the negative effects of life in a broken world. Isaac, as a follower of God, Isaac, as the covenant son, was not exempt from the natural suffering of human life in this world. Sometimes we, we act as if our natural sufferings are somehow a surprise to us, as if, God, I, I laid everything on the line for you. How could you let me suffer? But we need to understand that this is a common trial for all who are people, simply by reason of the fact that we are people living in a fallen world. We must not expect a free pass on suffering in this world. And James puts it this way in James 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. These, these things will happen. We ought not to be shaken by them. The blessing for Christians is not in some, some hope that trials don't come. The blessing is in what God does through them and with them. And there is a unique blessing and hope in it all for God's people. So the sojourn mentality, the, the pilgrim mindset, the famine and natural suffering. But there's another kind of trial that we see in this chapter, one that God's people often suffer, and it is this mistreatment or hostility from others or conflict of some sort. In verses 14 through 16, we see that the Philistines envied Isaac. Why? Because he was prosperous. Because he was a foreigner in the land who was devoted to Jehovah, and he was prosperous. And so in response to their envy, they stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug. It sounds petty, but it's a serious act of aggression. If you think about it, this is a, 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 there's a, a famine in the land. And these Philistines are going around and filling up these wells that Isaac was depending on. It is tantamount to an act of war in that culture. It could have been devastating to Isaac and to his family and to his livelihood. And all of this, not because Isaac was antagonizing them or mistreating them, but simply because they were jealous of him. It reminds us that the world does not like to see the prosperity and the security of God's people or of people who do not align with them. That was true for Abraham. It actually, for a moment, was true of Lot in Sodom. It was true for Isaac. It will be true for Jacob and for Joseph and for Israel as a nation. Moving into the New Testament, that was true of the apostles. And it has been true of the church from the very beginning. And it is true even of believers today. And so Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange, it's to be expected. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Again, the blessing of God is not found in being delivered from the persecution, but being delivered through it and what He is accomplishing in it. This is the reality for God's pe people. But as Peter says, and as we'll see later, it is, it is a reality that is attached to a blessing from God. But we just need to understand at first glance in this chapter, a reality that God's people suffer trials in this world. We come face to face with that reality. But that reality is just describing the trouble that comes from out there. 
from nature, from other people, from you know, those things that are all out there. But there is a second observation that I want us to notice that has to do with the trouble that comes from inside. Not just outside, but from inside. Not only do God's people suffer trials, but secondly, God's people face temptations. God's people face temptations. And I see this in at least three ways throughout this chapter. In some of these ways, Isaac was victorious over temptation. But not always. The first glimpse of this temptation that we get is in verses 1 and 2, and Isaac's natural default to autonomy and self-reliance in his response to this famine. Now, you may not see that right away just at first glance by looking at this, but when you hearken back to Abraham and the same situation that happened with Abraham back in chapter 12, you can see that there's this this natural tendency that when a natural disaster hits, we take natural matters into our own hands and try to come up with a natural solution. That's what Isaac does. In response to the famine, in verse 1, we read that Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. So he's traveling out, but he's on his way out of the promised land. The implication is he's on his way to Egypt, because in verse 2, God tells him, don't go to Egypt. Sounds a lot like what Abraham did in chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. He did the exact same thing. He left for Egypt, and that's where he got into trouble. Now, I'm not accusing Isaac of falling into sin because he took this trip. I'm not even saying it was a bad idea. But what I'm saying is God stopped him from doing it. There was a natural inclination that Isaac had that could have led him into grave trouble. And God had to stop him from that. God had to step in and redirect his, his eyes, redirect his journey, and redirect his faith. Because for Isaac to stay in this land during this famine would have been a spectacular act of faith. Because if he is leaving his homeland, it's because he probably can't see a reasonable way out yet. And God says, stop. Stay put. Now there's a fine line here, isn't there? Between using good, ordinary wisdom as we live in this world by common grace and then circumventing God's will. And here, God is avoiding that. God is rescuing Isaac from making a foolish choice by ordinary human wisdom. And God is saying, no, I have a different plan for you. Stay put. There's a particular temptation even for us to neglect seeking God's will, to not even think about what God's will might be, but to simply act in our own wisdom. And that often can be devastating. Here, God preserves Isaac from that problem. Isaac did not fall into this temptation in verses 1 and 2, but he did fall into it in verses 7 through 11. And that leads us to a second temptation that we observe, and that is fear and self-preservation. On top of the, test, the, the temptation to autonomy and self-reliance, we can also see this temptation to fear and self-preservation. We see that verses 7 through 11 where Isaac makes the exact same mistake that his father made twice and suffered for it. This is amazing. It looks absolutely foolish, and it is. Isaac travels down into Gerar, a Philistine area, so he's kind of headed southwest from where he was. And When the men of the place asked him about his wife, what does he say? She's my sister. And it's like, Isaac, did you not, did, did, did your dad not tell you this? Uh, certainly he would have said this. Or if Abraham dis didn't, certainly Sarah did. Right? Don't do this to your wife. But here we go again. And we've already studied the problems and the lessons of a decision like this in chapter 12 and then again in chapter 20. But simply notice here that it was fear for his own life that led him to sacrifice the safety and the purity of his wife, Rebecca. 
Here's where Isaac made a huge mistake. Here's where he gave in to temptation and fell into sin. He was afraid that the truth would put him at risk. It's not that he didn't believe God. It's that he believed that believing God was going to be the end of his life and that all this pagan world around him wasn't going to respect him. That the truth would put him at risk. And so instead of anchoring himself in what God had revealed and living by the truth and living by faith in God, he took matters into his own hands and thought he could smooth the way a little bit better. It's often where most of us go astray, isn't it? It's not that we completely deny the faith. It's that we think that living by faith in this particular moment is going to get us into some trouble. And so instead of trusting the Lord to protect and and remain true to his promises, we let our fear blind us to the reality that is uh, that to God's reality. And we take matters into our own hands. That's what Isaac did. And it wasn't until a long time later, the text says, I don't know how long a long time later, that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, this time he doesn't have a dream, and I don't know if it's the same guy. This could be a royal title. If this is the same Abimelech that Abraham was working with, then he's got to be at least 150 years old, which is possible, but maybe it was a different guy. But either way, instead of having a dream like it was before, This time, he just happens by providence to look out the window and he sees Isaac flirting with Rebecca. That's the idea behind laughing. He was playing around with her in a way that only a husband does with his wife. And Abimelech sees that, and so now he knows. And now the sin, the lie has been exposed. But my point here is this. Notice that the tendency even for God's people, when the heat of life is turned up, to let fear and self-preservation lead us away from trusting in God and leading us into autonomy and self-reliance. Isaac triumphed over that temptation in verses 2 through 6, but then he fell into it in verses 7 through 10, which reminds us that yesterday's victory does not guarantee today's victory. That vigilance against these temptations is a daily, constant battle. Temptation is always lurking right around the corner. Now, I want us to notice one more temptation that we can pull out of this passage here, and that is the temptation to act in vengeance and retaliation. Again, Isaac didn't do that here, but don't you think it was a temptation? When these Philistines start filling in uh, the, the wells, and then there's this back and forth confrontation with them in verses 17 through 22, stopping up the wells, causing all this trouble here. Abraham, or Abraham, well, Abraham, his father, had the means to do this, and I'm pretty sure at this point Isaac did too. That if he wanted to go to war with these people, he could have. But what did he do? He kept moving around. He didn't act in a spirit of vengeance. God's people face temptations just as surely as they suffer trials in this present world. And so it is for all of us. We need to recognize the reality of trials and temptations that confront us as a natural part of living in this world. Christian, what sets you apart from the rest of the world is not points one and two. It is not this idea that they face trials and you don't, or they face temptations and you don't. No, that is common to all men. What sets you apart from the rest of the world is point three, which is this. God's people receive blessing. God's people receive blessing. And here is where the character of God and the purpose of God and the working of God in the lives of his people, this is where that takes center stage and shines brightly against the backdrop, the dark backdrop of our trials and temptations. Here is where the substance of the text really starts to come out. In spite of the reality of trials in this world and the pressure of temptations, God blesses his people in the ways that are most important. 
And we see what those blessings look like in this passage. They are not the superficial, temporary blessings that we so often want to look for. Oh, God blessed me this morning because my alarm clock worked. God blessed me this morning because look at all this money that somebody gave me. Uh, there's, there's something much deeper and richer about God's blessing than that. And the focal point of all of this blessing, the fountain from which all of these blessings will flow, is the presence of God. The presence of God. And with it, the promise of God. Everything else will flow from that. And so we see, I have eight blessings, by the way, that I identified in this text. And the first one is this, the presence of God. Three times throughout this chapter, we read of God's presence with Isaac. God says in verse 3, I will be with you. He says again in verse 24, I am with you. And Abimelech, the pagan king, observes in verse 28 that the Lord has been with you. I will be, I am, and he has been. I think that's a pretty good summary of the greatest of blessings that God bestows on his people. His constant, permanent presence. Past, present, future. God was with his people. He was with Abraham. He was with Isaac. He was with Jacob. He was with Joseph. He was with Moses and Joshua. He was with the judges. He was with Ruth. He was with Samuel, and he was with David. He was with Solomon, and he was with all the people of Israel, even in the exile as they were out of the land. He was with the prophets. He was with the apostles, and he has been with the church from the very beginning. And all of his people in every age, in every way, at every place, at every moment, God blesses his people with his presence. And if that's the only blessing we ever hear about, Christian, it's all you need. It's all you need. God's people are not promised easy lives, but we are promised God's constant abiding, comforting, strengthening, and upholding presence. And that's what we're seeing played out throughout this chapter. So that we can say with David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because it's not that bad. No, because you are with me. And as the writer to the Hebrews proclaims, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Meditate on that. Not one moment where he has left you or forsaken you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God is with his people. And not only is God with his people, but God blesses his people with his promise. In verses 3 through 5, and then again in verses 23 and 24, God pointedly reaffirms his covenant. The covenant he made with Abraham, he is now applying to Isaac. And he will soon apply to Jacob. And he will carry that promise on. And he will develop it all the way through Scripture. And he assures them that the promise still stands. And it will be fulfilled just as surely as it is the God of heaven who made the promise. I am with you, God says. And I will bless you. And I will multiply you. And I will give you the land on which you stand. Famines are no threat to God's promises. Natural suffering and trials are no threat to God's promises. COVID is no threat to God's promises. It's not even a threat to your daily life for most of you anymore. But whatever's coming next isn't a threat to God's promises. The hostility and rejection of men are no threat to God's promise. Your weaknesses, your sin is no threat to God's promises and plans. 
Every promise he has made is as good as done because it is the almighty God of heaven and earth who has made the promise. And he cannot lie. And this isn't just a promise to Isaac. This is a promise to all who belong to God in Christ Jesus. You know why? Because the promises that God has made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and through Israel is, are, are promises that apply to all the world because they are centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says, I will bless all the nations through your descendants, it's not referring to, to economic prosperity. It's referring to the fact that all of this is leading to the family line of the Lord Jesus Christ who will be born into this world, who is God, who will dwell among us, who will give his life on the cross so that all who look to him in faith will be saved, reconciled to God. That's the blessing that we receive in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the kind of God that we serve. And we are connected to these promises through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at the heart of God's blessing on His people is His presence and His eternal promise. Now with that in mind, let's consider some of the blessings that flow out of that. Thirdly, God blesses his people with revelation and guidance. Have you ever thought about what a blessing it was that God has given us his, his word? Have you ever thought about how spectacular it was that twice in this chapter, God appears to Isaac? Why would God speak to men? He owes us nothing. What a blessing by his grace that he has spoken and revealed himself to men and guides us according to his word. Twice we see that here. Here's another implicit statement about the authority and the sufficiency of God's revealed word to guide his people into, into life and faith and godliness. Every aspect of wisdom in this world was telling Isaac, go to Egypt. And God says, stay put. And that's all he needed. What a blessing it is that God has revealed himself and his purposes to us in his word. Friends, are you making use of that blessing? Can you fathom God appearing to Isaac and Isaac just going on about his business? You can't, can you? But do we function that way practically on a daily basis? when we know God's word is guiding us and it is sufficient and it is calling for us to listen and we'd rather do something else. God blesses his people with revelation and guidance and sometimes we wander simply because we're not listening. Another blessing we see in this passage is God's preservation of his people. Not only does he guide and reveal himself, but he preserves his people. I love this. Here's Isaac in the midst of a severe famine, so severe that he thought he had to move to a foreign land to get out of it. And yet God told him to stay. And against all conventional wisdom, by faith alone, Isaac stays put. And then everywhere he goes, he prospers. Have you noticed how many times he finds water? In a famine? I mean, God's soon going to tell Moses to speak to a rock and water will flow. But here, this is even before that. Verses 11 through 14, the Lord blessed him. He became rich and very wealthy. This isn't a promise of health, wealth, and prosperity to all believers. Don't get me wrong. But this is a promise that those who believe in God will be preserved in this world, even in the midst of the worst circumstances, and that God will prosper his people according to his purpose for them. That's what God says to his people in Isaiah 41.10 when he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is a God who preserves his people. And closely related to that, 
we also see God's provision for his people. He provides for them. In verses 18 through 22, and then verses 32 and 33 again, everywhere he goes, he seems to find water. God's call to Isaac was not for him to provide for himself, but simply to follow him by faith and let God do the providing. Because God is the only one who can bring water out of impossible places, and he delights to do so. You know, this makes me think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? That, by the way, is not calling us to be, to be inactive and careless about our lives, but just not to be anxious, not to be you know, pulling our hair out trying to figure out, oh no, oh no, oh no. Christians so often live with this oh no mentality, right? It's going to happen again in November. Somebody we don't like is going get, to get elected into, into power, and Christians are going to say, oh no, oh no. And then we're going to get a new president one way or the other, and we're going to say, oh no, oh no. And then a new law is going to be passed, and we're going to say, oh no, oh no. And then some tragedy is going to hit, and we're going to say, oh no, oh no. I'm already hearing it all the time. Well, there's a time coming. We're not going to be able to get our food. Guess what, Christians? Don't be anxious about it. That's not me saying that. That's your Lord saying that. Why? Because your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. And His call for you is to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and to take the next right step and to trust that all the things that you need will be added to you. God provides for His people. Do you believe that? Does your daily behavior reveal that you believe that? that God provides for you. Another thing that we see here is forgiveness. He forgives his people. He blesses his people with forgiveness. And that's implied from the chapter. Um, Isaac is confronted for his lie about his wife, but everything about the chapter teaches us and indicates that Isaac got the point and was restored, that he did sort of receive this forgiveness, that he was repentant about that. It's a blessing that God forgives and restores His people when we sin. Just as He says in 1 John 1, 9, that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us. Is there a sin that you're harboring in your heart today that you won't take to the Lord because you feel like you've done it too many times now to be forgiven? Or because you think it's too bad that God won't forgive you? You don't say it in those terms, but your hesitation to go to the Lord reveals that's what you think. Friends, take it to the Lord. He forgives His people. Another thing that we see here, a seventh blessing, is that God blesses His people with blessing. You say, that's redundant. Yeah, but blessing and favor with the people of this world. Now hang with me for a minute here. In verses 26 through 29, it is Abimelech who testifies of God's greatness, of God's blessings. It is Abimelech who earlier had driven him away, who now reaches out to make a covenant with, it, with Isaac on the basis of God's blessing to him. It's Abimelech who says, we've treated you well, let's make a covenant because you are so blessed by God that, that we, can't, we can't hang with you. So let's make a covenant. As Isaac remained faithful to the Lord and depended on him, God gave him favor among the nations and has already begun making him a blessing to them. Now I know this is not a promise that God's people will always be liked by the world. We've already seen that. But we do need to recognize that the unusual savor of Christians in a fallen world will to some be a sweet savor. We are, after all, the salt of the earth, Jesus said. And then finally, closely related to all of that, God blesses his people with peace. 
And I know my first two points were that we, we suffer trials and we face temptations. So how can I now say that God blesses his people with peace? He blesses his people with a peace that surpasses all understanding, that does not make human sense. It is not a peace that brings us rest away from these trials and temptations. It's a peace that rests on us in the midst of them. It is a peace that is foremost peace with God that then produces the peace of God in our circumstances. And this is a peace that the world cannot know. And this is a peace that enables God's people to live with stability and faithfulness and godliness in this present world, even though all the pressures are pushing us somewhere else. Because it transcends our circumstances. We don't have to fear when things get rough. Because God is with us. And He is blessing us with everything we need. God still brings peace to the situation in verses 30 and 31 between Abimelech and Isaac, even though the Philistines are still there causing trouble. They're still lurking around. The trouble doesn't necessarily go away, but the peace is there. Now, let's pause for a moment, because I know that this is a passage about Isaac. And I know this is in a particular context, and I know that the observations I've made from this text are not all direct statements from the text. I know that. I always want to be careful not to read into a text something that wasn't meant to be there or to make an application that wasn't meant to be made from this text. But each of these observations are general observations about life, about mankind, and about the character of God that is demonstrated in specific scenes. We can learn general truths about God through specific events. We do it all the time. And that's what I think is going on here. That's been my approach to this text. On this basis, I think it is appropriate to take these lessons for ourselves that in this world, it is true that God's people suffer trials. You know that. I don't have to convince you from Scripture that God's people suffer trials. My goal is to convince you that is not to be surprising. You are to expect that. And my goal is not to convince you that God's people also face temptations. You know that too. And you know exactly what your temptations are. And you know exactly how you fell this week. And I'll bet you could guess how you're tempted to fall this coming week. My goal is to convince you that that's not new, that that doesn't make you unusual, that that doesn't make you weird or less of a Christian. And my goal is to convince you that you do not have to give in to those temptations. We noted three kinds of temptations in this text, and Isaac was victorious over two of them. Victory is possible in the lives of God's people. But in it all, what I want you to see most is that in the midst of the trials and in the midst of the temptations that are a hard reality of life, God gives great and precious blessings to his people. That even when he doesn't deliver us from the hardship, his blessing rests upon us in the midst of it. And He upholds us. He is with us. He provides for us. He preserves for us. He guides us through it with His Word. And that brings us to our final observation, which has to do with our response to it all. Our response to the real-life blessings that God pours out on us from day to day. What do we do in light of all of this? Well, simply put, God's people look to God. God's people look to God. We suffer trials. We face temptations. We receive God's blessing. And in it all, we look to God. What do I mean by that? That sounds so simple, right? What does it mean? There are a lot of people who talk about God who are not really looking to God. 
I want us to be a congregation that truly looks to God. What does that mean? Well, two things. First of all, it means that we obey God's revelation and guidance. In verses 5 and 6, that's exactly what Isaac did. He didn't understand everything. He didn't understand how this was all going to work out. He didn't need to. All he needed to know was God said stay, so he stayed. Isaac took the first, the first road of wisdom he could think of, but then when God said, no, do this, he did it. That was obedience. And it's obedience that is rooted and motivated by the character of God. And he responded to the revelation and to the guidance that God gave to him. Now, God isn't going to necessarily appear to us on the sidewalk. We know that's not how he normally works. But again, God's word is at our side just about every day. Are you in a position of hearing and are you in a posture of obeying what God has revealed to you in his word? And are you striving to follow his guidance for your life? That's one aspect of what it looks like to look to God. The other is worship. Worship. Worship God in response to his blessings. In response to this revelation and promise and the presence and the provision that we see throughout this chapter, in verse 25, Isaac builds an altar and he worships the Lord. The relationship of God's people to God, the relationship of our obedience to God, is not a relationship of grief and harsh servitude. It is a relationship of joyful worship. Why? Because God has called us to obey because he knows it's good. That's what we're designed for. And he has made it possible so that in the midst of all the pressure, we have his blessing. We have his presence. We have that promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. And therefore, we can obey with a heart of worship and joy because God has been so tremendously good to us. It's simply a question of this. Have you tasted and seen that our Lord is good? Or are you just trying to taste and see that God's going to do whatever you want? That's not a position of worship and obedience. But sometimes that's how we approach Him, isn't it? We say God is good because He did what we expected. In the course of a day, Job lost everything. And what was his response? The Lord gave. The Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a posture of obedience. That's a heart of worship that belongs to God's people when we recognize that though we face trials and temptations in this life, we are the recipients of God's blessing. And we, are, and we lay our lives down at His feet for Him to do with us what He will because we know it's good. And it all comes down to this. From beginning to end, all of God's promises are ultimately wrapped up and His blessings are ultimately wrapped up in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? It's an eternal blessing. It's a spiritual blessing. It's a heavenly blessing that has initial ramifications in this present life, but ultimate fulfillment in the life to come. And that's where we're looking. That's what gives us peace here. To those who believe on Christ, we are rescued from sin and death and we receive His promises and His presence and His blessings. So the question is this morning, do you have this relationship with this God through Jesus Christ? And are you living today in the light of your relationship with Him? That makes all the difference. We face trials, we face temptations, but we receive God's blessing and so we look to Him alone. And that's the call. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, 
set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. My friends, look up today. Look and live. Father, thank you for this time in your word. We thank